We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. Over the last few years, neoliberalism, the economic model that has dominated since Margaret Thatcher was PM, has taken a big hit. Big spending and state intervention have been the name of the game as the government scrambled to get to grips with the pandemic. An unprecedented economic intervention to support the jobs and incomes of the British people. We spent £407 billion on COVID support and our debt now stands at over £2 trillion. We need to invest in science and innovation, improve infrastructure and connectivity and extend educational opportunity to underpin economic success. So, while Boris Johnson gets ready to pack up his things, we still don't know who will be replacing him in number 10. The two final contenders, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, have been described in the press as channeling the blue-suited ghost of Thatcher. He was a tremendous leader, a really world-changing leader. And, you know, I'm very, very proud uh, that she was our Prime Minister. Once she had got borrowing under control, she embarked on a programme of supply-side reform, and that is exactly the same path that I want to follow. <sighs> so, have the last few years solidified a new kind of economic mainstream? Or will Johnsonism be swept aside once the new PM has unpacked their toothbrush? Welcome to this special mini-series of the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, has neoliberalism hit the buffers? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So, I am chuffed to be joined by two number one eggheads and friends of the pod. First of all, Ellie Mohagen, director of Class Think Tank. Hi, Ellie. Hi. I do have quite a round face, so egghead is <laughs> quite literal in my case. Okay, nice. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'm also chuffed to be joined by OG, friend of the pod, Laurie McFarlane, previously of Neff fame, now research associate at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. That's a mouthful. Hi, Laurie. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for coming, both of you. So let's dive in because we have a lot to cover. So I want to start with the two people who are fighting tooth and nail to be in control of the country, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Multiple newspapers have said that they are channeling Margaret Thatcher, as I said at the top, in order to win over Conservative Party members. So Ellie, let's start with you. What do newspapers mean when they say this? What does it mean to be a Thatcherite? I think it means essentially Thatcher, when she came into office, um, she threw a Friedrich Hayek book down on the table in cabinet, who was the, he was the kind of godfather of neoliberalism. 
And she said to the cabinet, this is what we believe. And essentially that means at its most extreme, it means that the markets kind of do what they want without any state intervention whatsoever. Obviously, the reality under Thatcher and also under subsequent neoliberal governments is that the government does retain control over certain things. So the NHS is an example of that and the education system. And it has had to intervene quite a lot in um, moments of crisis, like the financial crisis in 2008 and like the pandemic that we've just been through. And maybe again in the cost of living crisis, we'll see government intervention, hopefully. But what it essentially means is Weak trade unions, what is described as flexible labour markets, which essentially means people being able to be fired and hired at will, and the markets and companies really not having that many regulations to sort of shape their behaviour. And I think what people like Thatcher believe is that deregulating these markets will kind of bring about economic freedom, and then the people at the top will get very, very rich and then everybody will benefit because the wealth will trickle down. That's that's the idea behind it. I don't think it's worked. Um, I think most people listening to this would think it probably hasn't worked, given the state that we're in. But that's basically what they mean. And, and that is what, when people say that's what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are channeling, what they mean is that they're promising to build an economy like the one that Thatcher built in the 1980s. Interesting. I mean, we know, obviously, that one of the ways in which Thatcher's kind of political project was different from those that came before her was that it was both a kind of cultural attack or a cultural approach, as well as a kind of political and economic one. You know, she famously said, economics are the method, the object is to change the soul. And I think that's a really important thread for us to talk about today, the extent to which neoliberalism as a cultural project, as well as a as an economic and political one, has shaped the way that people think about themselves as part of society and, and how that pervades still today. Let's talk about tax cuts for a second. So, you know, top of both of Truss and Sunak's economic agenda is tax cuts. So Laurie, why are they so fixated on them? Is that part of this kind of uh, the project that Ellie was just laying out? And what role do tax cuts play in their vision of the UK economy? It is very much so. I think that, um, as Ellie said, they're both at the moment sort of trying to, you know, channel the goals of Thatcher, at least for now. And a key part of that is this agenda of tax cuts. And that really has been the dominant theme of both of their campaigns. Liz Truss was quick out the mark to campaign on tax cuts and Rishi Sunak was a bit more cautious to begin with, but then felt like he had to uh, he had to catch up. And the idea, as, as Ellie just said, is that by cutting taxes, uh, particularly for those at higher incomes and for corporations who will be the main beneficiaries, that this will you know, free up uh, money for those individuals and corporations to you know, invest or, or be entrepreneurial and that, that they will create wealth and that will eventually sort of trickle down to the rest of society. And I think one interesting thing in this campaign that we need to bear in mind is that although they are both very much campaigning with tax cuts as the key uh, pledge, they are sort of at the moment pandering towards the constituency that's going to decide who becomes prime minister, which is, of course, Tory members who are overwhelmingly old, white, rich men, largely in the in the south of England. And so people, in other words, who would very much benefit from tax cuts. And so I think the interesting question really is, you know, it's not surprising that they're campaigning along those lines just now. The more interesting question is, will they keep this up when either of them becomes prime minister? And 
Obviously, we don't know. Um, I says, ideologically, I think they are very committed to that. But my instinct is that they won't be able to simply because it won't survive contact with reality, given the huge, huge, immense economic and social challenges that we face at the moment. The idea that tax cuts are going to do anything to address that, I think, is not just dubious. I think is flat out wrong. And I think that purely when they do face reality, when they come to power, they will face huge, huge challenges that tax cuts won't address. And particularly given that this isn't just the challenges that we're facing isn't just going to affect, you know, lower income households or those on welfare or private renters, you know, constituencies that the Conservative governments have been quite happy to to sort of throw under the bus in the past. This is going to affect, you know, households all across the country, including the sort of middle class homeowners that are often the sort of core of the Tory base. And so, we will see whether or not they do keep up this uh, focus on tax cuts. But I suspect that it would be very difficult to do that in practice. That's really interesting. So so what you're kind of saying is at the moment you think they're kind of talking a, a Thatcherite game in order to appeal to, the, the, as you say, the Tory base. And then they're actually going to have to pivot when one of them gets in to respond to the cost of living crisis. A question, I guess, for either of you then is like, what do you think they will end up doing. Obviously, energy bills are going to skyrocket. Families are going to continue to struggle to afford groceries and bills. Inflation is going to hit, what, 18%? I don't know what what I heard today, but it sounds out of control. How are they going to respond to that if it's not tax cuts? I know that Liz Truss has come out in defense of big business profits, and they've also been talking about various housing schemes. But I mean, shaky predictions, have you got any? Well, first of all, I think the only solution now is unfortunately for the Conservative Party, is to tax the rich. That's the only solution. And the the reason for that is one of the big causes of the the trouble that we're in, particularly in terms of inflation, is because there's too much money at the top of the economy. So like the people at the very top are getting loads and loads of money. and, And that means that the prices are rising for the rest of us. So what we actually need to do now is to share that money out more equally so that people like ordinary people can get a pay rise and can start, you know, spending their own money. And also that there isn't this kind of hoarding of money at the very top. But I think because she said, talked about tax cuts, I do think she really believes that. I don't think that she will tax the rich. I think probably, well, I mean, this is more Laurie's kind of wheelhouse than mine, but I think she probably will do some more quantitative easing, which is where the Bank of England creates money, essentially. And I think that will probably make the inflation crisis worse. I was talking to someone who knows Liz Truss's team quite well yesterday, and they were sort of saying to me that um, there is an understanding amongst some of the people around her that if she doesn't do anything doesn't make a kind of strong intervention, then the country will kind of collapse and there'll probably be a Labour government within a year and the Tories will probably never be in power, well, for like another sort of 30 years or something. But on the other hand, the people that pressure her in the party are people like the European Research Group. They're the kind of hard Brexit people. Um, And also the Net Zero Group. They're the people that oppose Net Zero. And they have what we were talking about earlier in terms of neoliberalism, they have very hardline neoliberal ideas, which means that they'll be pushing her to do um, minimal intervention. And I think what I've learned in the years that I've been around Westminster is that when you're the leader of a political party, 
you're actually very detached from what is going on in the country, what ordinary people think. You know, you, you get taken everywhere by assistants, you get driven everywhere in a ministerial car. You don't really have any real world experience anymore. And so what the people around you are saying becomes quite important in terms of which direction you go in. And I think on balance, I think she probably will listen to the people that are saying that she needs to make a strong intervention. Because I think, like Laurie said, it will become so clear the sort of catastrophic results of not doing that, that I think circumstances will force her that way. But my concern is, what is that intervention? And I think also what COVID shows us is that this particular government has a habit of intervening once a tipping point has already been passed. And and that's my real concern. I suspect, I mean, it's very uncertain. We don't know. But I, I suspect what might happen is that either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will come in and faced with the unfolding catastrophe will be forced to act. Partly, as I said, just because of who this is impacting. This isn't just, you know, this is hitting core Tory constituencies, including, I should say, business and small business, energy hikes. There is no price cap for businesses. And they're seeing bills, you know, quadruple or, or, or even much more than that. So I suspect what they might do is basically throw some money at the energy problem. But again, this comes back to Ellie's point about, well, yes, they'll intervene, but on whose behalf are they intervening? And I suspect that the way that they'll do that is, is basically as a way to sort of shield the energy companies. So, so sort of de-risk energy companies. So yes, I think Liz Truss had talked about, or there was rumours that she talked about, a hundred billion energy crisis fund, and of course, with a hundred billion, you could take the energy sector into public ownership, and you could transform the way that the sector is run, and ensure that it's run in the interests of you know ordinary households rather than company shareholders. But I suspect what they will do is they will come in with some intervention with some money behind it, but that will do that will be done in a way which will protect energy company and energy company profits in doing so. So will be done in a way which doesn't really challenge the, the sort of corporate power underpinning that. And I think that's that's quite consistent with the approach that we've seen, you know, over recent years throughout the, the pandemic and under Johnsonism, where yes, the state has intervened and has played, you know, a more proactive role in the economy. But that doesn't always mean that, that it's particularly progressive. It depends on what shape that intervention takes. And I suspect that it will be done in a way that, that very much doesn't challenge the power of the energy companies. That's not to say that it might not benefit households and small businesses as well. It might. But I think that with, with the money that they spend, they could do something altogether different and much more progressive. But that would require taking on you know, corporate power, invested interests, etc. And that's not something that I, I expect to see. No, me neither. Both candidates are, as you say, kind of invoking the, the ghost of Thatcher. But another thing that they're both trying to do is distance themselves from Boris Johnson. So I'd like to take a quick look back and talk about how Johnson's government managed the economy while he was in the top job. So Laurie, starting with you, I know you've written that he was a political shapeshifter, which made his beliefs really hard to pin down. Um, what did you mean by that? Well, I think Johnsonism broadly, if we can call it that, I think his time in office was really defined by a series of, of contradictions uh, on a whole number of, of issues. I think the first thing to say is that Johnsonism was not what we saw under David Cameron and George Osborne. It was, I think, notably different. So on the one hand, we saw the government 
did take a more sort of interventionist approach in some areas to the economy. And that wasn't just limited to COVID-19 measures, although significant, obviously, that they were with the furlough, etc. So we saw under Johnsonism the creation of, you know, a, a sort of range of sort of state agencies which didn't exist before, like the UK Infrastructure Bank, which is a new public investment bank, the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, which was a Dominic Cummings invention. We also saw uh, Boris Johnson talk about creating a new state nuclear company, Great British Nuclear, talking about nationalising parts of the national grid, things like that. We also saw the Treasury, which not many people know about, the Treasury took ownership stakes in hundreds and hundreds of companies through the, the British Business Bank's Future Fund during the pandemic, which means it's now an equity holder in lots of companies. And I think it was John McDonnell kind of joked at one point that that Johnson's carried out more nationalizations than any Labour Prime Minister since Harold Wilson, which is kind of, uh, there's an element of truth there. And then, of course, there's a the whole levelling up agenda, which is basically sort of regional policy, which was sort of long uh, viewed with scepticism by Tories since Margaret Thatcher kind of really bend regional policy generally. And so there's all that kind of stuff on the one hand, and that's led some people to say, you know, neoliberalism's dead, you know, we're, we're seeing a new type of state activism, if you like. But not all of that was always progressive either. As I said, it's, it's often to protect, you know, their core sort of interests. But at the same time, we saw Boris Johnson, you know, talk about being Rooseveltian and talk about net zero and how it's going to lead the world at, at COP26. Meanwhile, he's, you know, trying to expand North Sea oil production, build a third runway at Heathrow, open up a new coal mine, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then in other areas, we've seen basically the Johnson government double down on the kind of free market fundamentalism of Cameron and Osborne in that sort of Thatcherite legacy. So we've seen the whole global Britain project that was obviously came out of Brexit, talking about a bonfire of domestic regulation, uh, these trade deals that have been struck uh, with countries often undermining social environmental standards. We've seen a significant attack on trade union rights, for example, again, another key pillar of Thatcherism. And the government's also talked a lot about deregulating the city of London, again, part of the sort of global Britain post-Brexit thing, which again is, is very much in the sort of Thatcher, Osborne vein. And so, yeah, overall, it's a really sort of mixed bag. And I don't think there is a, a very coherent approach or ideology underpinning this. Boris Johnson, you know, he is a political shapeshifter and will often do whatever suits him at a particular moment to serve a particular interest. And so, yeah, overall, I think I think Johnsonism was definitely a departure, a notable shift from what we had before. The question about whether it's the end of neoliberalism or not, I think, is kind of a semantic one. I think for me, what's more interesting is to look specifically, well, in what areas has he sort of continued that project or doubled down on it? And in what areas has, you know, have we seen something different happen? And so, yeah, I think it's, it's been an interesting few years. But uh, I think the interesting question is, how will Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss respond to those contradictions? Will they take them forward? Will they continue them? Will they undermine them? Will they take an altogether different direction? Oh my God, Laurie, when you were describing that, I really had the sense of being like, you know, on those roller coasters when you go through like a fun house of hell in like <laughs> in a theme park and things just keep jumping out at you and it's so confusing and chaotic. Like that whistle stop tour that you just took us on through uh, Johnsonian economics really, really gave me that sense. I feel nauseous and like I've eaten too much candy floss and confused. Ellie, coming to you on that question of, of neoliberalism and as Laurie helpfully posited, whether or not Johnson Johnsonism, I don't know what we're calling it, the thing that he did, was in fact a neoliberal project or not and what that means today. 
What say you? I guess I, to be totally blunt with you, I guess I come at it from the point of view that I don't really believe that most neoliberals really believe what they're saying. There are some like Alistair Heath, who used to write for The Telegraph and I think is editor of City AM now. I've done some things with him and he's someone that I actually respect because he believes what, I mean, I don't agree with him at all, but he believes what he's saying. Whereas I sometimes think with neoliberalism, actually, most of the people who believe it are the people who essentially want lots of money, want to make lots of money, own lots of things and do what they like. And they've kind of retrofitted an ideology to sort of justify that, to make it sound like a good thing. And I think the the reason I think that is because there's been many occasions where neoliberalism has broken, basically. And those same people are the first to demand that the government, the state, steps in and rescues certain companies or banks or, or whatever it is from neoliberalism. And then neoliberalism after that so far has just kind of reset and continued. So I guess in a, similarly to Laurie, I'm less interested in are we still living under neoliberalism or not? And I'm more interested in the question of what does a progressive economy look like? I think the idea that a small state is right wing and a big state is left wing is is wrong when you can have big states that do that use their wield their enormous power to make sure that money travels up the economy to a small group of people. You know, like, let's remember, it was a Tory government that introduced, it's Rishi Sunak, a Thatcherite, that introduced the rise in national insurance, which is quite a regressive tax. So, you know, you can actually increase state power to do right-wing things. So for me, it's less about, are we living in a neoliberal society? And more about, like, what do we need to do in order to make the economy progressive? Definitely. And, and I would just echo that and also say, I think the key point, as Ellie was saying, is, you know, the fundamental question is, in whose interests is the economy being run? And what we've seen is the sort of the things that the government are doing have changed, but often they've changed to kind of protect or advance the interests of those who were, you know, winning under neoliberalism, but changing circumstances, global and domestic circumstances, necessitate that the government needs to do different things. Um, but often it's, it's, it's not as if the government's being more interventionist to change the balance of power or distribution of wealth. It's intervening to protect the balance of power and distribution of wealth. And so I think that the question of whose interests are being served here, I think is really important. And I don't think that changed under Johnsonism. Interesting. That's a very helpful reframe. I think, you know, I think you're completely right that often, especially as progressives who have conversations like this, we get really caught up in not only defining the problem, but defining the system that upholds and and generates the problem rather than thinking about the alternative. So I think that's a very helpful corrective. I want to talk a little bit about government spending because I feel like we've got a, a good handle on the carnage that has been wrought on the economy over the past few years and, and maybe how that carnage might be continued in the next few. But a question that I had is, did Johnson kind of create a new kind of conservative economics in which spending was maybe okay or looked upon differently? I know you've kind of both alluded to that in different ways. And or will the idea that, gov- that the government can spend money go out of the window once Sunak or Truss take over. I I think what I'm really kind of trying to pin down here is it feels incredibly important to understand better what 
both the government ideology, but also, I guess, public perceptions are around borrowing and spending and how that has changed since 2010? I can speak to this because I've done some research on this. And in fact, I'm writing about this very thing in my book at the moment. Basically, immediately after the financial crisis, what we saw in public opinion was a political consensus was sort of destroyed, really. So up until 2008, between like the early 90s and 2008, there was this consensus in politics that had built up that basically everyone's a winner. There's no such thing as class conflict. We can all advance together and we all benefit from people getting very rich. So, so they should just be kind of allowed to do what they want. The famous saying is from Peter Mandelson, who said, we should be intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. So it was this idea, rich people can get super rich and then we'll benefit from that. And then what the financial crisis did is it sort of destroyed that, partly because it it meant that the economy stopped growing and people's wages stopped rising. But it also destroyed this idea that the rich are a good thing. Then we had the sort of coalition government and they were very clever with what they did there because they were very close to the financial sector before the financial crisis. And so when once everything crashed, it was very difficult for them to sort of come out and criticise the banks because they'd actually been calling for like more regulations to be cut. So instead, what they did was they said, this is a crisis of public spending, we've cut too much. And what we found in those years is that most people thought the cuts were unfair, and that they were unhappy that they were happening. But a majority of people very consistently from 2011 to 2015, felt that even though they were unfair and not good, that they were necessary. And that's really, I think, where the support for making big spending cuts came from, this idea that we can't invest, that we need to cut back. That's where it came from, is this idea that it was necessary. And the reason for that is that people saw the, and still do see the economy a bit like a household budget. Money goes in, money comes out. And so if you have less money in than you need to pay out, then you need to cut back. Obviously, we know that's not how the economy works. But that was essentially the idea. And that's still quite a powerful frame that a lot of people use in their minds. But what we've seen in more recent years is the consequences of those cuts have become felt more widely across society. At first, they were just felt by the people at the very bottom of the economy, people who are struggling the most. And those people don't really have a voice. So it was invisibilized, really. But in more recent years, we've seen things like, you know, people's local communities have been experiencing closures. The NHS is obviously in a lot of trouble, and it was way before COVID. You can't get a doctor's appointment for ages now. All of these kind of things, people are feeling it in their lives. And we are seeing this sort of turnaround where people are kind of, are just sick of it. And I think what I've picked up is that actually... People are supportive of quite radical progressive policies. So like, for example, a £15 minimum wage in the red wall, the red wall seats, has got about 70% support, which is massive. Vast majority of people are in favour of taking a lot of our utilities into public ownership. But I would say that the problem that we have now, um, and by we I mean just people in politics who want this stuff to change, is that the other effect of austerity is it made people think differently about what's possible in politics and, and, and in society. And it sort of destroyed people's hope that the future could be better than the past. So what I think we have now is a majority of people who kind of share our ideas as progressives who want a, want a new economy, 
but who really lack the belief that it's possible. And I think that's driving a lot of our politics at the moment is that cynicism and pessimism about what is possible in the future. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me completely, Ellie. And a a question that I had um, around this was to do with the current Labour leadership and the extent to which that window, I guess, or the perception of what's possible is limiting the policies that they're willing to advocate for and ask for. I've literally had conversations with really fantastic movement folks who've said, you know, we can't push for that because even though the current Labour leadership might like it, they would never go for it because they don't want to be seen as too, you know, close to Corbyn's politics or it doesn't feel feasible enough. And I guess it's a it's a question both about the Labour leadership, but also about what we should be doing in general um, when it comes to this question of the balance between pushing for what's achievable versus trying to stretch the Overton window, the age-old question, but I'm rooting it in a question about the Labour leadership. I think the Labour Party, the the current Labour Party, has sort of snookered itself a little bit. In 2019, Labour had a catastrophic defeat and, and a, there's no escaping the fact that a really big reason for that was Jeremy Corbyn was extremely unpopular. He was, I think he was the most unpopular leader ever I think perhaps since like these kind of things are recorded um so he was very very unpopular and I think because as well the Labour Party is a broad church and what that means is that they they fight a lot amongst themselves as a sort of factional issue there I think there was also a sense of from the right of the party that you know the the left had sort of taken the party away from its rightful owners and then trashed it and so when they took over, when Keir won and he appointed lots of people from the Labour right in his team, and remember what I was saying earlier about who politicians listen to, who leaders listen to is really important in understanding why they do the things they do. I think there was this idea that they needed to distance themselves from Corbyn, which I actually think they did in the beginning. I think they did because he was very unpopular. But I think what they also did was they thought, well, we need to distance ourselves from from all of these particular types of policies that people will associate with Corbyn. And these are policies like investing lots in, you know, like what John McDonnell said about having a sort of state bank, what um, Laurie mentioned earlier, but also taking utilities into public ownership and free broadband, that kind of thing. And actually go back to a sort of more like an Ed Miliband offer of um, we'll have a little bit of public ownership, but not too much, a little bit of intervention, but not too much. And actually that's put them in a bit of a bind because a lot of the obvious and popular solutions to the problems that we're seeing at the moment were also kind of put forward by Corbyn. But I think the Labour Party is reluctant to adopt them because it's worried that people will think, oh, that's that other guy that I don't like. I'm not going to vote for them now. But I think what the polling shows us is that when Labour actually, so they just um, came up with this policy to freeze energy bills for six months, which personally I think is like fine. I don't think it's an amazing policy. I think it's just delaying the pain for six months, but it's certainly better than, than nothing. They jumped 15 points in the polls. So I think to me that shows that when they actually do make interventions, it does win people over. But I think I think they're in a bit of a difficult position at the moment because they can't beat the conservatives on the right and they're afraid to move left. So they're sort of stuck in the middle, struggling to find their own identity and their own position in this moment of crisis. 
Thanks, Ellie. Laurie, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think that it's interesting at the moment how Labour are responding because on the one hand, while we've seen the Tories, as as we've talked about, you know, John McDonnell has, has joked about this as well. You know, there are some echoes of a kind of Tory version of parts of the agenda that we saw under Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, things like the Public Investment Bank, for example. Also, I mean, levelling up as a whole project, you would never really have heard that kind of language. And some of the language in the levelling up report is quite striking under David Cameron and George Osborne, this idea in, you know, investing, regionally rebalancing, all that kind of stuff. And as Ellie said as well, you know, fiscally, as we were just talking about the Tories, this sort of austerity narrative of maxing out the credit card, that has kind of dissipated. We've seen during the last few years, we've seen the Bank of England basically finance huge amounts of government spending through money creation, if you like. And so we've seen things move significantly. But at the same time, in terms of Labour's response, they have kind of partly to kind of distance themselves, I think, from previous leadership, almost gone out their way to try and position themselves as the more sort of conventional, in some ways, small C conservative approach to the economy. They haven't said much on policy, but a few weeks ago, we had Keir Starmer set out his sort of, I think, what was probably his most comprehensive vision to date. And then they're saying, you know, we'll fight the next election on growth, growth, growth. We will be fiscally responsible in our approach and going out, you know, Rachel Reeves going out the way to put out, you know, a fiscal rule, which does kind of tie the government's hands quite a bit in terms of what it can and can't do. And yeah, seems to be the, the approach sort of seems to be we will be prioritizing economic growth and we'll be doing that through supportive policy a pro-business environment and i think labor is very seems very hesitant to take a stance on is all business good or is some business good seem to be just saying you know we're very pro-business full stop rather than recognizing that maybe there are parts of the british economy parts of the corporate world which actually aren't engaged in, in wealth creation they're engaged in wealth extraction And we saw Ed Miliband, he briefly flirted with the idea of producers versus predators. The perception is that that didn't go down terribly well. And so I think under Keir Starmer, there's this perception that we want to be seen as very pro-business. We want to be seen as fiscally responsible. uh, We want to be seen as, you know, prioritizing economic growth. Keir Starmer's team has also sort of flirted with the idea of enhancing the competitiveness of the City of London, taking advantage of post-Brexit opportunities by ensuring the city's competitive. And so it's quite strange. You see this kind of reversion, as Ellie said, kind of to, to the sort of Ed Miliband and in some cases Blair approach of maximise private sector growth. Let's get the city firing all cylinders and then sort of skim off some of the surplus to spend on public services. And I think at a time when we are facing such enormous crises and a time where the Tories, at least under Boris Johnson, were adapting in their own way. Labour seemed to be, you know, reverting to quite a sort of an approach that, you know, wouldn't have been out of place, say, five, ten years ago. And so it just doesn't seem to fit the sort of moment and the scale of the crisis that we face at the moment, I think. Which is disappointing, (laughs) to say the least. Um, We have spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about what has not been done so well over the uh, the past few years in the economy and also making some pretty bleak predictions about what might be coming. But of course, this miniseries is also about thinking about alternatives and what we need to be doing differently. So I want to spend the last portion of our conversation talking about that. 
So first of all, um, maybe to come to you, Ellie, you've touched on it a few times in the conversation. I know that you've been involved in a big study into how progressives can talk about race and class specifically to win change. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about that, but also to hear in general about where you think progressives and perhaps the Labour Party or progressive parties need to be putting their energy and attention and the way they need to be talking about things if we're going to move beyond this moment, which was very well articulated at least in part by the the neoliberal agenda and its proponents and towards something that could actually work for everyone. So the race class project, so we were inspired by a project in the US with the same name called the race class narrative project. And essentially what inspired us was that this current government, I mean, it's it's a sort of feature of every government to to a certain extent, but, but this current government is particularly egregious when it comes to putting forward the idea that the white working class in this country are being ignored and oppressed by metropolitan middle class elites who are so fixated on heaping privileges on undeserving minorities, by which they mean people of colour and recent immigrants, that the, the working class, the white working class are being left behind. And that's taken lots of forms over the years. So when I was a kid, those people were called the sort of, you know, muesli eating, guardian reading, woolly liberals. You know, when I was a teenager, it was the PC brigade. And now it's the woke mob. And what we argue is the reason that the government is doing this, and it's not just the government, it's also the kind of media sphere around the government. So we have lots of pundits saying this stuff as well is because they really don't have any answers on the economy. So all they have really is this kind of distraction technique where they say, like, no, don't look at the people at the top. They're not the problem here. The problem is your neighbor. The problem is the kids that your kid goes to school with, who are people of color, that they're getting more advantages than your child. And they're actually doing that to divide people against each other, but also in an electoral sense, It divides um, the Labour Party's coalition. So the Labour Party's coalition is traditionally de-industrialised places in the north, what what I guess is now called the Red Wall, but then also urban centres that tend to be younger, more diverse and more progressive. And and it's always been in the past that it's that coalition coming together that has sort of like ushered the Labour Party into power. But what this does is it actually convinces that coalition that they are so far apart in their values and their beliefs that they can't possibly unite. And it also says to them, the government says to them, we are the white working class's only supporters. We're the only ones that care about you. And it is, it's very powerful. I would say that it primarily appeals to pensioners who are wealthier and may have been born working class but are quite wealthy now. Working age people tend to be much more progressive, but it's effective enough to win elections, which is obviously a problem for progressives who don't want governments that are not progressive to win elections. And what we found, so we did lots of testing and we we had focus groups. We listened to what people had to say about their lives and their experiences. And we did lots of testing to see which messages work the best in terms of neutralizing this divisive narrative. And what we found was that narratives that bring people together tend to open with a shared value. So the ones that we used, which we found were very were very effective, was 
the value of making a better world for future generations and the value of working hard in whatever form that takes, whether paid or voluntary or caring for children. Then we talk about what's getting in the way of that value being realized. So it could be the NHS being sold off or schools not getting the funding that they need. And basically, whatever it is, we suggest that you're specific and you name the problem and then you name the people involved. And at the end, what's really crucial is you then have a call to action, which is about people making change, people being agents of change. And the reason that's so important is from what I was saying earlier, that people are very cynical about the possibility of change and about their own ability to make change. So it's really important that when you name problems that you also you're also clear that solutions are possible and that people can make change. Um, and what we found is when you talk about things in those terms, when you use a narrative that brings people together around their shared values, is clear and specific about the problem, and then puts forward popular solutions and empowers people, that it actually does neutralize this divisiveness. So I think for us progressives, I think that a big task that we have is actually embracing these narratives and talking in a way that brings people together that is resonant and that people can understand and that they can relate to. Thanks, Ellie. That makes a lot of sense and incredibly thorough. I'm assuming that people, I'll ask you at the end where people can go to hear, to learn more about the project because we all need to be doing it. Laurie, I wanted to come to you for thoughts on my question, which was, you know, around where we go from here. But specifically, I know that you've written that there are opportunities for progressives to use the changing economic consensus to our advantage. So it'd be great if you could talk more about that and, and where those opportunities might be. Yeah, I think I mean, one thing that's really clear about where we're at at the moment is that it's easy to get, you know, disheartened and feel gloomy and, and things are looking gloomy. You know, we're facing a series of overlapping intense crises. But I suppose on, on the flip side is that it is typically during these times of crises that we tend to see these sort of shifts in, you know, whether you call it Overton window or political economic paradigms or, or whatever. And I think that you know, historically, we are in one of those moments just now, you know, and I think as things get worse, as they will get worse over the course of the next, you know, six months, year, however long, it's going to become increasingly clear that that we need to do things very, very differently. And we're already seeing that. And we've seen that with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing that now with the cost of living emergency. And of course, you know, underpinning all of this is accelerating climate environmental breakdown. And so, Things need to change because we are at, we're already at breaking point, I think. And so, um, the challenge, I think, for those of us who are progressives is to meet the scale of that challenge. And I think that it is only the progressive side who has, you know, answers that, that kind of do meet the scale of the challenge that we face. As Ellie said, I think that if you look at the right in this country and elsewhere, you really don't have answers, certainly on the sort of economic questions here and therefore our sort of, putting their focus elsewhere. So I think the, the challenge for us is not only to have the, you know, the, the sort of policies and, and ideas that do meet the challenge, and that's whether that's around ownership or investment or workers' rights, industrial strategy, and all this kind of stuff. But the real challenge, uh, I think, is that how do we actually win? Because on all these sort of questions of, well, what do we do? You know, there's enormous amount of great work being done all across the country by a huge number of different organizations and people. The challenge is how do we actually win to have a chance of any of that happening? 
And that's why I think the work that Ellie and others have been doing on on that kind of work is so important because, you know, having a great set of answers to these problems is no use unless there's actually an opportunity to put them into practice and win. And so we need to focus on that that source of hope because otherwise I think the next sort of six months, 12 months, it's going to be very, very easy for all of us to get very, very, very disheartened and down and gloomy and it's going to be a very, very tough time. But ultimately things have to change. You know, Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no alternative. And I think that there is an alternative and we need to hammer that point home, as Ellie said, in order to put together a sort of build a coalition who can actually win and put some of this into practice, I think. And I would say as well, I would add to that, that it hasn't always been like this. You know, when I was a kid, it was the traditional socialist left that was intellectually exhausted, that didn't seem to have anything to say that only had old ideas that had sort of fallen out of fashion. It was the neoliberals that seemed to own the future, to be embracing the future. You know, I remember, you know, in the mid-2000s, Tony Blair talking about how globalisation, I mean, we can argue to what extent he was a neoliberal, but this argument is certainly neoliberal, that globalisation is a sort of a force for good, that it's inevitable, that it'll kind of help all of us and... You know, so it wasn't always the case that progressives had all the answers and the right had nothing to say. But I think the moment that we're in at the moment, it's created all of these crises that really there are only these kind of progressive radical answers are the only ones that take us anywhere good. And I think that's the difference is that they are really the only the only answers at the moment. I suppose what I would um, perhaps like say to any listeners who might be feeling pessimistic is things have changed in that respect. You know, we weren't always the people with all of the ideas. We weren't always in step with the public. We were kind of hated by the public for a long time. I remember that The Sun used to have a loony lefty of the week column, but that has changed. Things have changed. And I think this is a moment for us to put our ideas out there because they will be received well by the public and they're so necessary at this time. Could not agree more. Thank you both so much for taking us through all that. And hopefully on the rest of this mini series, we'll be exploring some of those ideas in practice from the climate to housing, to asset management and ownership, um, to really start to put some meat on the bones of what that can look like in practice. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you both so much for being with me. That is all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Ellie Mayo Hagen, the myth, the legend. Thank you so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about about your work, raise class, other stuff? Where can they go? What should they read? Um, check out uh, the class website, classonline.org.uk, and that's where the race class project lives. Fantastic. And the inimitable Laurie McFarlane, who introduced me to the Pizza Crunch. Thank you so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work, the Pizza Crunch, and uh, everything that you're up to, where can they go? How should they do that? Uh, probably best... Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, I tend to share stuff there. Um, and it's a slightly strange handle. It's at L2 underscores McFarlane. I remember we've had this issue before. <laughs> really setting story. yourself up to fail. Why would you do that? Okay, well, we will help listeners to hunt you both down by putting your, uh, your Twitter handles in the show notes. That is it for today's new economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more, don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. 
The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.